Well, today we're going to look in the book of 2 Corinthians, and we'll consider verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, and in chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Before we begin, though, I want to tell you about a missionary family in Peru. Uh, this was told, and I saw it on the ABC News primetime show, it's been probably 10 years or more ago, Diane Sawyer was reporting. The Bowers family, they actually lived on a pontoon houseboat on the Amazon River in Peru, and they would travel up and down the river, and they ministered to some 50 tribes in that area. Well, they were flying in a plane one day, and I have to assume that Mr. Bowers, Jim Bowers, was the pilot, because it just seemed only the family was in the plane. Our CIA was in the area because they were doing drug interdiction and investigative work. And for some reason, the CIA plane um, was tracking their plane. They knew who they were, but the Peruvian government didn't. Thought they were drug smugglers and they shot the plane down. And it, as he explained to Diane Sawyer, it hit the water just a massive ball of fire. And But then, uh, He's floundering around the water. His son is near him. It was his wife, their seven-month-old, seven-year-old son, seven-month-old daughter, seven-year-old son, and him. The fuselage just tipped over, and all the flames went out. But he could see that his his wife was, and and young daughter, were dead. And after about a half an hour, he and his son were rescued. And um, they were obviously very well known and well liked in that region. They showed videos of them, their own videos of them, working among the people and serving the people uh, from their houseboat where they lived. And even interviewed one local man there who just broke down as he called Mrs. Bowers his sister. And it was quite touching and to the credit of ABC they called it a great story of, of faith uh, in the midst of tragedy. And when she interviewed this missionary, Mr. Bowers, she asked him the question that I guess any of us would have asked, why would God take a baby? Why would God kill your baby? And he thought and he said, I don't know exactly why God does what he does, but I had 17 years with my wife and I had seven wonderful months with my beautiful daughter. And I know that they're in eternity now, in perfection. And I am content with that. And I thought it was amazing that he could give such a, a testimony of faith about the love uh, of God in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of affliction, in the midst of the inexplicable, really, that most of us would never never experience. Uh, but just as that story depicts, the scripture tells us that our God is a God of compassion. And curiously enough, he uses you and I to express the love of Christ to those that are around us. Well, let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting with verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those 
in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. And in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, starting with verse 14, But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks for your word. We know it's truth. We know by it that we learn, we are taught, we're rebuked, we're transformed more and more into the image of your son. So I pray your Holy Spirit would be present now and move from heart to heart to teach us, Lord, and to change us. We ask that in the name of your Son, our Savior, Christ Jesus. Amen. In 2 Corinthians, we get a real close-up view or a more close-up view than typically we typically get in Scripture of Paul's uh, heart, his emotional state. Unlike most of his epistles, which are great theological treatises, this is a, a more emotional type of writing. He spends time talking about his own suffering and his own pain. He writes with great imagery and passion here in this book. And then we have the question for the day. It was at the end of our scripture reading. Who is equal to such a task? Who is equal to such a task? It's really a rhetorical question which basically answers itself, who is equal to such a task that the Lord calls us to? Well, no one is. So you say, well, what is the task? Being messengers of the gospel of Christ, or as it says here in the text, being the aroma of Christ in a lost and dying world. Okay, no one is equal to that task. So we serve a God who gives us a task he knows we are unable to perform. Yes, that's true in a sense. The church father of the fourth century, St. Augustine, prayed this prayer, Father, command what you will and grant what you command. Command what you will and grant what you command. He was reminding God as he was confessing it in prayer, God, if you don't do it, it's not going to get done. Aren't you glad we serve a God who is the father of compassion in light of that and the God of all comfort? Did you notice that? He's the father of compassion. Our God is not just given to compassion. He's not just compassionate on occasion. He's not just hit with spells of compassion for his people or for others. He is 
compassion. He's the, his very nature is compassion. He's many things, but he, here we're told that he is the father of compassion. And certainly Jesus embedded or embodied that notion of, of compassion himself, the only begotten son of the father of compassion. You remember last week when we saw that Jesus wept at Lazarus' tomb. He wept over the city of Jerusalem as he saw the unbelief of the people and the sin of the people. So the question often follows, if he's the God of compassion, as was asked this missionary, why does he allow people to suffer? There is an incident that it's, I heard it uh, related to Josh McDowell, the author, who wrote the book uh, More Than a Carpenter. He's written many things, but he wrote that book. I think that was the first book that brought him some some notice in the Christian community. He was debating an atheist, and at one point he was asked, if there is a loving God, why do the innocent suffer? And that's basically the same question that Diane Sawyer asked that missionary, isn't it? If there's a loving God, why do innocents suffer? Well, he thought for a few moments, and then Mr. McDowell said, he asked a question of his own. He said, well, if there is no God, what makes them innocent? And who cares if they suffer? That was somewhat harsh, but if there's no absolute standard of righteousness, then we have nothing by which to judge innocence or guilt or anything else for that matter. If there's no righteous law giver, then really we are left to our own devices and we become a law unto ourselves. Do you ever watch PBS shows or National Geographic shows like on cheetahs or tigers and you'll see them following a herd of gazelles? They'll be crouched down and you just, you know, you sit on the edge of your seat like I do. I always close my eyes when they go for the kill. But, <laughs> but that one gazelle will kind of get separated from the herd and they'll attack and drag it away. But what does the rest of the herd do? Well, they'll just eventually just settle down and go back grazing. Now, if someone broke into your home at dinner time and chased your family around the house and caught one of them and, went and took them away, would you just at some point just sit back down at the dinner table and go on with business? I guess we got a better joke in the back. I didn't quite catch it. No, that's because we are the only creatures made in the image of God, truly made in the image of God, with the law written on our hearts. We somehow innately, believers and unbelievers, know right from wrong. And I think innately know as well that there is a moral law above us that comes from outside of us. But still the question remains, why suffering? Primarily, I guess, it's because of the curse of sin. Romans chapter 8 reminds us that the entire creation suffers under the bondage to decay. And the creation groans as in childbirth, waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. So we live in a fallen world, and we're a fallen people. That answers a lot of questions. The scripture also tells us that suffering produces perseverance, as the Apostle Paul referenced in, in this passage. But in Psalm 119, the great lengthy psalm about the law, verse 71 says, It was good for me to be afflicted that I might learn your decrees. 
Have you ever prayed that to the Lord? Thank you, Lord, that I suffered, that I might learn more of you. Suffering actually can mature us spiritually as we see it from the hand of a loving and compassionate God and mature us and form us into the image of Christ who obviously suffered. But it's a God who does not arbitrarily harm us, but he works all things for our salvation and to transform us into his son. The son of the father of compassion, who was also described as a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering and grief, a high priest who is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He hurts when we hurts, he understands. He understands our pain. And as verse 4 tells us, a God who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. So the Father of compassion wants us to be a compassionate people. Do you get that? That's the real point. So we go back to the question asked of that missionary. What do you say to people who ask what kind of God would take a baby's life? Well, he said his wife and his baby are now in the eternal presence of that God of compassion. And he also said, well, God, you know what you're doing. That's how he prayed. And you're obviously doing something great out of all of this. And he said he already has. And I assume he's speaking to, to some extent, the great platform that he was given because the man really did proclaim the gospel on this program. He said his wife's goal was to reach people for Christ, and she's doing that even in her death. You see, she did not lose her life in that airplane that day. You see, Mrs. Bowers lost her life many years before when she turned it over to Christ. She lost her life when she responded to the gospel. She lost her life when she responded to the call to be a missionary in a houseboat on the Amazon River. And what is the promise from the son of the father of compassion about those who lose their lives? Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 10:39. Mrs. Bowers had already found life that could not be taken from her. She did so by losing her life for the sake of the gospel. Losing her life by becoming that aroma of Christ in this world. And I would say in one of the deepest and darkest and probably dangerous places in the world. But if you had asked her that day just before she got on that airplane... Mrs. Bowers, I understand why you're here, but who is equal to this task? Who is equal to this task of evangelizing these remote parts of Peru? With the Amazon River as their sanctuary and a houseboat as their pulpit, who is equal to such a task? And I'm sure we know what her response would have been. Do you remember the Apostle Paul's heart cry, that I might know him, that I might know Christ in the power of his resurrection? We can all affirm that. But he goes on to say, in the fellowship of his sufferings, 
being made conformable to his death. It's often said Jesus came not so much to live as to die, and so we are called not so much to imitate him as we are to identify with his death. Know his sufferings and share his compassion. And all of us tend to know something about suffering, but do we share his compassion as well? Do we share it with others? We serve a God who's the father of compassion and the God of all comfort, and that God afflicts and comforts us so that we might be equipped to comfort the afflicted. One ancient church father, Tertullian, said, He who fears to suffer cannot belong to him who suffered. And the great prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, says it perhaps even more graphically, Before you can wear a crown in heaven, you must wear a cross on earth. But then as the Apostle Paul is wont to do in his writings, and I assume in his preaching, while discussing suffering, the Apostle Paul breaks out in a rather unrelated doxology of praise in the second chapter, but thanks be to God. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. Did you know that's what you do? When you walk around this world, when you interact with folks, wherever, at work, at school, in your family, in the marketplace. The image here is of a, of a conquering army coming home from a great victory, a military campaign. And in ancient times, they would have a great celebration as the army came back. And there would be uh, dancing and singing with the, around the army as they marched. And people would often burn incense and other things, and there was great rejoicing. So the air would be thick with, you could say, the smell of victory. And the people knew what that was. They recognized victory. And that's what Christ does through us. He leads us triumphantly, and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. So it's by faith we are led in that triumphal procession in Christ and we become the fragrance of the knowledge of him. And just as when those ancient armies would return home and the air would be thick with the smell of victory, so too as we serve Christ, as we trust him, as we obey him, the air around us is filled with that fragrance, the aroma, the fragrance of the gospel. But as you see from the scriptures, that aroma is not pleasant to everyone. If there were any of the vanquished in that triumphal procession, that was not the smell of victory for them. Our passage says in verse 13, For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and to those who are perishing. To the one were the smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life. If you needed a title for this sermon, that might be it. The smell of death, the fragrance of life. Pretty powerful image, isn't it? 
dramatic language, the smell of death, the fragrance of life, all speaking to the same gospel. You might have heard soldiers that were in wartime, in battles, and they would say the smell of death was everywhere. I'm sure in the Holocaust, in those German internment camps, that was literally the case. I remember in the 1990s, I followed the Holocaust in the African nation of Rwanda when they had their civil war. We sent troops over there, but not to get involved in the fighting. Our troops were sent literally, and their mission was to pick up the dead. And there were so many, all they could do was dig these massive trenches and they would push bodies using bulldozers into these trenches. Unnamed, unnumbered masses buried by our soldiers. And the relief workers there, I remember it, they said, Rwanda, that's hell without flames. And after that, the, the famine in Somalia where our troops were sent just to bring food to the feeding centers, but so many thousands, and I would have to guess millions, died on their way trying to get to the feeding center, using the last ounce of life within them to try to make it to some sustenance that might keep them alive. So many died along the way. The smell of death. The smell of death. And you see, to unbelievers, Jesus is by and large, merely a dead historic figure with no power, no relevance, no authority over our lives today. So to them, Christ and his gospel and his ministers, which are you and I and every other believer in the church, his ministers, we're the messenger of death. To the unbeliever, the gospel is bad news. I remember the great Francis Schaeffer, the theologian, his son, Frankie Schaefer got to be a writer. His first book was based on the title of the New Living Bible. His first book was entitled Bad News for Modern Man. But that's really what you proclaim initially. Have you ever thought about that? You've got to hear the bad news before you can hear the good news. Maybe that's why we often hesitate to witness Because to those who reject us, yeah, that smells. I don't like that. It's like the smell of a rotting carcass or the smell of death in war. Because that's what it promises to those who are outside of Christ. And you know, it's interesting and rather curious that Jesus spoke about that. He, he spoke about eternal punishment more than anyone else in Scripture. We don't, just intuitively, you would not think that was the case. But you remember in, the, uh, in his Sermon on the Mount, he said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to go uh, into eternity um, with a broken body than it is to go to hell with a body that's whole. And when he, when he pronounced that, he may have pointed from the Mountain of Olives over to the temple where there was typically bloody water rushing out of the temple from sacrifices, and it would run down into what was known as the Valley of Hinnom, which was actually the garbage dump of Jerusalem. 
And I say, no, I, I don't use the word landfill because it was not kept at all. Things were just dumped there. And it was called Gehenna in Jesus' language, in the Aramaic that Jesus used, Gehenna. And Jesus said, Gehenna, the garbage dump. He compared that to hell. And here's why the evil king Manasseh, and we've discussed this over the weeks, who he erected uh, altars to pagan gods, and they even sacrificed their children to pagan gods. They did that in this valley of Hinnom. That was a place where they did that. And then when the good king Josiah came to power, he ordered that all those altars be torn down. He brought reformation to the people, brought the word back, but he also declared that that valley was desecrated, unfit for human habitation, and that's when it became the trash heap of Jerusalem. He said that blood of innocent children has been spilled there. No one can live there again. They discarded garbage and waste from the city, dead bodies, animal carcasses, just thrown out there. And it burned continually. And the smoke from the fires would mix with the smell of the rotting carcasses. And Jesus said, Gehenna is hell where the worm never dies and the fire is not quenched. Whoa. When Jesus had to get serious, he got serious really quickly, didn't he? But you know, Jesus was not given to exaggeration. That's why the Apostle Paul would say, we are to God the aroma of Christ to those who are being saved and to those who are perishing. To one were the fragrance of life. To the other, the smell of death. To those who are perishing, the gospel is the smell of death. And the messenger of the gospel, that's you and I and every believer in the church of Jesus Christ, the messenger of the gospel has that smell of, as Jesus would say, Gehenna, where the worm never dies and the fire is not quenched. And the folks could certainly relate to that because they saw it every day. So what is our temptation, especially now in the 21st century? Well, let's just water down the gospel a bit, shall we? That's a bit rough, Jesus. We'll avoid that. Put some air freshener on that smell to make it easier to accept. But you know, the gospel declares... Bottom line, the gospel has two basic promises, life or death. That's what it's about. It's serious business. I mean, ours is a supernatural religion, and that's what it comes down to, life or death. And as faithful servants, when we are that aroma of Christ, folks will know that. It's either wisdom and life or foolishness and death. Because you see, apart from Christ today, men, women, boys, and girls are headed for the trash heap. There's no other way to say it. Where the worm never dies and the fire is not 
quenched. And we have the privilege of sharing with them the gospel of life. The way of eternal life. And so we are called to process triumphantly with God, with this father of compassion, and to be the very fragrance of the gospel. To some death, to some life. Because you see, in our society today, it's no great mystery or no great insight here. People mistake death for life and life for death every day. That's really what we're about. You think King Manasseh was evil for sacrificing children to pagan gods? We do the same thing today. We don't build altars. For you see, we've mistaken death for life. And the addiction crisis that we're in right now, that has become a crisis now, it's getting so much notoriety, it's mistaking death for life. That's what it's all about. I saw a man who is a soloist now with the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir, which is a rather well-known choir that was started by a man. The church was started, I think, in his living room, and now it's grown. And they have recordings and CDs, and it's a well-known. He's a soloist with them, but he came from a, a drug addiction, and that's how that church really started, taking people from the streets, giving them the gospel, reclaiming their lives. He said he was such an addict to crack, cocaine, that when he walked down the street, he could hear the drug calling his name. Now that's mistaking death for life. Because in his mind, he had to have it. He had to. Do you know the first time in, recorded in scripture when death was mistaken for life? Sure you do, it was in the Garden of Eden. The serpent said to Eve, did God really say, I like the King James, hath God said, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Well, no, he didn't say that, as a matter of fact. He said we couldn't eat from one tree, or we would die. And what was the serpent's response? The serpent's deception is the same as it is today, the exact same. You will not surely die. You will not surely die. God's just jealous. You'll become like him. You won't die. Satan's ploy has always been and always will be to get men to mistake death for life. You will not surely die. Go ahead, eat the fruit, try that drug, live however you want. You will not surely die. Go ahead and mistake death for life. So I have to ask this church, how do we smell today? Are we the aroma to Christ, of Christ for our Heavenly Father? Are we the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ to our friends, to our family? Or does your life say to those around you, you know, I'm not really worried. I can do whatever I want. I will not surely die. The real question is, are you headed to that trash heap or to the eternal triumphant march with Christ Jesus? Let's consider an, an individual from the Old Testament who 
mistook death for life. His name is Mephibosheth. We find his story in 2 Samuel chapter 9. That's when King David is on the scene. But let me give you some background. He was the son of Jonathan. And you remember Jonathan and David, who would become King David, were close and best friends. Jonathan being the son of King Saul. And they loved each other very much, even though Jonathan's father spent much of his time trying to kill David. Jonathan and David made covenants with one another, and probably included in that was whoever dies first or whoever is killed first, the other one will look after uh, the family of the other party. That's just, that's a little extra biblical, but I think that probably was something they had talked about. So King Saul and his sons were suffering terrible defeat at the hands of the Philistines at Jezreel. Saul's three sons were already dead. He was wounded, and he told his armor bearer to kill him rather than be taken captive by the Philistines, afraid that he may be tortured. But the armor bearer just could not do that. He could not take the life of the king. So we read that Saul fell on his own sword. Uh, the Philistines were ruthless. They cut off the heads of Saul and his sons. And here's how one commentator describes what happened. They consecrated the armor of the king and his sons to the temple at Ashtaroth, fastened their bodies to the temple of Shen, while they fixed their heads ignominiously in the temple of Dragon, thus dividing the glory among their several deities. Wow, that's a defeat. No triumphal marching in that. And in 2 Samuel 4, verse 4, we read, Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became crippled. His name was Mephibosheth. So now if we move down to 2 Samuel chapter 9, David asks, is there anyone left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba, your servant, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he, the king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied, don't be afraid. David said to him, do you think Mephibosheth was afraid to be in the king's presence? I can pretty well guarantee you he was because maybe not just in that culture, but in many cultures, when the king is deposed, the new king, the new throne often will go out and look for family members to eliminate so there will be no dispute, no contest for the throne. That is relatively common. Mephibosheth was five when his father was killed, and he himself has a son now. So 
He's basically lived a good part of his adult life in the shadow of King David, probably waiting for that day when King David might come to dispose of him. And Phibosheth is so much like us, isn't he? So much like all of humanity, born into a great, noble, royal family. But there's a problem, there's a tragedy, there's a fall, and great is that fall. So much so that he's permanently injured and crippled for life. And he lives in fear and probably hides from the king that he has never seen, who was once his father's closest friend. And then the call comes, the king wants you. The king wants to see you. The king wants to see you right now. Come with me. So what does Mephibosheth think? Probably that he will suffer the same ignominious fate as his father and grandfather. So let me go back to verse 7 in chapter 9 of 2 Samuel. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Wow. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? We frequently discuss what is humility. I think that was a little spot of humility that hit this guy. Who am I that you would notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him. Bring him in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. And in parenthesis it says, now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. So Mephibosheth had a lot of people caring for him at that point. So here's Mephibosheth. He's born into royalty. There's been a great fall. He's permanently crippled. He gets a call from the king. He thinks it's a call of death, but what is it? It's the call of life. The call of life. He's restored all the fortunes of the royal family, and he's given a lifetime meal ticket at the king's table. No wonder he fell down in front of the king. Think of what it was like to eat in the King David's table at that day. Who was there? Well, as best I can tell, there was Ammon and his daughter Tamar. She was kind of the Princess Kate of her day, I guess, Duchess of Windsor. And I can see Solomon there with maybe a book under his arm, talking philosophy and theology and the politics of the day. And then Absalom, the Prince Harry of his day, the one who would later turn against his father and try to oust him, and whose father would mourn at his death. Those along with the other courtiers of the day, they were the beautiful people. And then what did you hear? Some thumping noise, and there's Mephibosheth trying to get to the table. Perhaps he had to be carried to the table. I'm not sure. He thought it was the call of death, but it was the call of life. He thought of himself as a dead dog, yet the 
king gave him lands and servants and wealth and adopts him, as it were, into his own family. And verse 11 tells us, Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem. Now look how this ends. Listen. Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table, and he was crippled in both feet. You see, Mephibosheth ate at the king's table, but he never forgot. He never forgot who he was. He never forgot that there was a great fall and that he was permanently crippled, and the grace of the king gave him a new life. Much like King Jesus, he calls us when we are fallen and crippled and afraid, and we often think the king wants to take off our head, but what does he want to do? He wants to give us a new heart. And he's calling to restore to us all that was taken from us in the fall when we were crippled. And he's calling, calling us into his household to sit at his table, to become a member of his family. It's a call of life, not death. And the call includes that responsibility to call others to be that fragrance of Christ to the world, regardless of how others respond to it, even though they may think it is the call of death. Our mission, church, is to go out and to say to those who are crippled, the king wants you. (laughs) The king wants to see you. The king wants to see you right now. Come with me. He wants to provide for you, and as the prophet Joel said in the Old Testament, to restore the years the locusts have eaten. He wants you to eat at his table. It's such a shame that so many in our world today mistake life for death and death for life. I am, always have been my entire life, I'm a real fan of radio, which is kind of from a bygone era, I guess. Radio about politics, sports, just talking, whatever. And my favorite of all time that some of you may not remember is Paul Harvey. Now, Paul Harvey, he died in 2009, but his radio career extended from 1952 until 2008. And he would, he would tell the news and he would read stories, but he would always give you some background information that you wouldn't hear other places. And his famous closing line was always, and now you know the rest of the story. Well, he was headquartered in Chicago, and he told a story once, and I'm just remembering this because it struck me so much, about a taxicab driver in Chicago who had the best day he'd ever had And that means he had more cash on him than he'd ever had in one day. So he had a lot of money on him. And he decided, well, I'll do one more fare, and then I'll go home and call it a day. And there was a guy who was flagging him down, kind of a seedy-looking guy. Had a long trench coat on, but he didn't think much of it because a lot of his clientele were kind of seedy-looking people. 
So he picked him up, and the guy gets in, tells him where he's going, and it's a ways out of town, so he thought, well, this will be a pretty profitable fare. And as they're driving, he asked him if he could stop at the convenience store so he could get a six-pack of beer. So he says, okay, pulls in, he does that. And they drive out, and they're, it's dusk anyway, but they're outside of town where the lights of the city are dim and it's rather dark. And then the unthinkable happens, and he feels that cold barrel of steel against the back of his neck. And the man says, stop the cab, give me all your money. And he thinks, well, I'm dead either way. So he gives him his money. And the man said, when I get out, I want you to take off. And if I see your brake lights come on within five miles of here, I'm going to kill you. The man gets out and slams the door. And that driver, he just puts his head down virtually on the steering wheel, he said, and just guns it and takes off. And he hears a thud on the back quarter panel of the cab. And he doesn't look back. He doesn't check the rearview mirror. He just drives. And after he feels like it, he could be safe, he stops with his head still on the steering wheel and his, you know, his heart in his throat. He gets out slowly and he looks and there's the man's trench coat caught in the back door. That's what happened. It threw him out of it and his body obviously hit the back of the, the cab. So he opens the door and picks it up and he reaches in and there's all his money. And then he looks in the back seat and there's a six-pack. <laughs> and me, being the spiritual man that I am, I was reminded of Ephesians 4, 8, when Jesus ascended on high and led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. <laughs> Similar to Mephibosheth. I mean, a few minutes before, he was dead, and now he's brought to life, this cab driver. A few minutes before, he was a dead man, and a few minutes later, he's brought to life, and everything that was taken from him was restored. And he's got a six-pack to boot. <laughs> so how many Mephibosheths are there out there? We see them every day, don't we? We see them everywhere. No matter how prosperous they may appear or how much they seem to be in charge of their own life. They're crippled, they're afraid, they're running from the king, mistaking death for life. And our mission, church, is to go out and proclaim the good news to those crippled masses. Amen. The king wants you. The king wants to see you right now. Come with me. He wants to provide for you to restore the years the locust has eaten. He wants you to eat at his table. He wants you to be a part of his family. That's the message we're to proclaim. And that's the spirit in which we should proclaim it. He wants you to be a part of his family today and for all eternity. Let's pray. Lord, we give you great thanks that you are the Father of compassion. We're thankful that your Son put that on display by when we were yet in our sin, he gave his life for us. 
you gave that which was most precious to you. Father, I pray if there's one here today that doesn't know of that Savior and that gift, I pray that they will understand that he was the second person of the Trinity that came to this earth and was born of a virgin, that he lived a sinless life, he died a torturous death, he was buried, he was resurrected, he's ascended to the right hand of the Father of compassion, and he is a soon-coming king and judge of all mankind. Father, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit you might turn a heart today to trust that one that has given so much that we might have life abundantly now and eternally with you. And Father, as your church, may we, with great eagerness, follow you in triumphal procession. May we by faith see, Lord, that you desire that we reach those who are the least, the last, and the lost, those who are crippled, those who fear the king, that they might be adopted into your family. Lord, give us a heart to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.